Well, Merry Christmas, almost, huh? Almost. We're almost there. Hey, can I uh, share with you a phrase that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, and uh, I want it to sink in. The beauty of the Christmas story is found in God's love. That's really true. The beauty of the Christmas story is found in God's love. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit later, and we'll walk, we'll walk into this statement. The beauty of the story is found in God's love. In fact, from an earthly perspective, there was nothing else about the birth of Christ that was beautiful. Nothing. It was an ugly event from an earthly standpoint, what was going on. We'll talk about that a little bit. But the beauty of the Christmas story is found in God's love. Do you know that God didn't die for you simply because he wanted one day for you to all have a like belief system? He didn't die for you because one day he wanted us to assemble in small groups and, and, and just study the Bible and spend time in fellowship and eat a little bit together. All those things are good. God came to earth in human form and later would die on the cross for us because of his love. He was driven, compelled by his love. And so the beauty of the Christmas story is found in God's love. That he would even take the action to do what he did to come to earth. It's just one thing. It's love. It's love. It's love for us. And so we'll talk about that this morning. You know, with three kids, we've kind of established a number of tr- Christmas traditions already. Do you have some of these that go on in, in your home? Uh, we, uh, we like decorating the tree together, and we leave one ornament for the very end of the tree. You see, I was dating Cherie, and uh, I was in Kentucky. And now, remember, I grew up in at Los Angeles, you know, city boy, and I'm in Kentucky in this small town, and there was a uh, squirrel that ran across the lawn. And I said, hey, look at that chipmunk. It's not overly impressive to a girl you're trying to woo when you're uh, in nature calling animals by the wrong name. Uh, but, you know, that stuck. I, ca- I said, well, in California, we call those chipmunks. And uh, my mom bought us a little uh, Christmas ornament for our first Christmas. And on the bottom, she wrote the words California chipmunk. And it's a little squirrel with a uh, Santa hat. That's our tradition to put that up last and to tell that story about what happened. You know, another one is we read Luke 2, that story on Christmas Eve. We read that to our kids and we let them engage in Luke chapter 2. And we've tried to do it in a creative way so that the kids kind of latch onto it and, and read it as well. Um, and we found that uh, we no longer say we'll open up that one gift right after Luke chapter 2 because uh, then they don't hear a single thing. Um, except for that wrapping of the gift in front of them. You know, one of the less spiritual uh, uh, things that we do is on Christmas Day in the afternoon, we go see a movie together as a family on that afternoon. We kind of just all, all, you know, we just kind of throw, you know, our money, caution, no caution, or whatever the phrase is, uh, and we get the popcorn and the drinks and the whole bit, bit and we watch a movie on, uh, on that day. Um, I, I just kind of love Christmas movies. Do you like Christmas movies? Yeah, I mean, we just, we just enjoy it. You know, take a moment. T- turn to that person next to you and just tell them what your favorite Christmas movie is. Take a moment to do that. Yeah. All right, all right okay. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say to share the whole plot with them. Just, just the title of the movie is Okay. Uh, just a movie. I heard a couple of familiar ones out there. This week I did a non-scientific study of uh, your favorite Christmas movies uh, via some email and uh, my 
Facebook family, and I came up with the top 10 Christmas movies. Here's what I came up with. Number 10 was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, that classic one? We watched it last night with Sierra at, in my house, and um, I had a hard time getting through it. But number 10 on our list. The, number 9, The Santa Claus. You remember this one? Yeah, yeah. Some, some people resonate. They like that one. Number 8, um, Die Hard. Okay, I'm going to confess a second. That didn't even make the list whatsoever, but um, I put it on the list (laughs) because it's my favorite Christmas movie. Uh, Number seven is A Christmas Story. Yeah, we didn't remember that one. Number six, Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. Uh, Number five, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. (laughs) Nothing says Christmas quite like a weird little green man. Uh, Home Alone was number four. Uh, Somebody even said Home Alone 2. Come on now. Come on. Two. No part twos. Um, Die Hard 2, maybe. <laughs> Christmas Vacation was number three on the list. Yeah, that movie's dipped in gold. All right? Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life, number two. And, uh, and this is the number one undisputed, and of course, unscientifically created movie uh, in the world it, uh, for Christmas is Elf. So, yeah. That's right. ELF, if you're taking notes. So. so we're talking about this text at Christmas that's a pretty famous text. In fact, last week we walked through this text and we we looked at it from the view of wonderful counselor. In fact, this text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I mean, it's so familiar with us that anytime the text even comes up, people often think, oh, that's a Christmas text, right? And if it doesn't come up at Christmas time, we're like, whoa, what's going on here? Is this like Christmas in July kind of thing you're trying to pull on us? It's a Christmas verse that resonates with us. For unto us, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's what's being told to us by Isaiah. And last week, when we looked at Wonderful Counselor, we talked about the dark counsel that the people were receiving in the day. Remember, they were going to medians and spiritists, and that's where they were looking for their counsel And this darkness was on them. But we learned in that story that darkness would not get the final word, that darkness was not the final chapter. Why? Because unto us a child is born. And so when we looked at that, uh, we are reminded that uh, there is a different meaning to Christmas. As we look at this verse, you know, um, I think about Christmas. What really is it from a spiritual or a Christian perspective? And as I was looking, you know, I came up with this, this phrase. I really think we need to remember that Christmas is really God's annual reminder to us that he loves us all, and he's willing to do anything, anything it takes to draw us to his side. Anything. And that's what the Christmas story reminds us. Well, you know, uh, in this day and age, when we were talking last week about Isaiah, about the people of Israel in Isaiah's time, you have to remember, uh, they were about to be ushered into a dark age. We talked about that. King Ahaz was about to lead them into the Babylonian captivity time, where for 700 years straight, there would be some other authority ruling over them. There would be some kingdom, some empire that was telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do. Some other culture that was influencing them that said, now you need to live this way for 700 years. This was about to happen after this verse was written. You know, there's really two types of rulers. Uh, There's rulers that you give power to, such as addictions, our selfishness. How about debt? 
How about loving the wrong person and getting locked into that relationship? There are rulers that we give ourselves to, that we hand over authority to. There's also rulers that take power from you, dictators, oppressors. In the case of the people of Israel, it was empires that would rule over them. Do you know that God, he is, he is so much concerned with us building community and spending time together, being in church and fellowshipping, but do you know God is passionate about overthrowing oppressive dictators in our world. He's passionate about that. That he does not want that type of authority to rule over us. And that's what was happening with the people. It was about to happen. 700 years they were going to deal with it. And so when we read this verse, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, uh, it makes me want to know who was ruling over them. What did that rule look like? I mean, what is the phrase, mighty God? What type of encouragement might that offer the people of Isaiah's time? What would it mean to them? Can I tell you this morning, it meant everything. Everything. For them to read the passage that one day, one day, the Christ child would come and he would grow to be mighty God. Mighty God. That meant everything to them at that time. And so when Isaiah recites those words, and he shall, be rec- he shall be called mighty God, we need to remember how unmighty, how unmighty the people would feel during that 700-year reign, especially at the onset of it. Because when Babylon came in, they didn't come in to move their culture in. They didn't come in to move their economy in. They came in with sword to wipe out. And those that survived, remember, they were deported 500 miles away to Babylon, and that's where they would live during that oppressive time. So let's remember this. Remember that time, all right? And we'll come back to it in just a minute. Can you put that kind of on the side burner, and we'll come back? All right, good. Some estimates say that today, 2011, in North America, we experience 500 ads every single day. Um, Excuse me, 5,000 ads every single day. Have you heard this? 5,000 ads every single day. That is a ton of ads. I mean, now we're not just talking billboards or the TV web. I'm about sick of the Lexus commercials, you know, with the two very trendy hip couples that are buying each other, the, the Lexus, you know. Have you seen these commercials? Um, I'm about, about, about done with those. We're, we're, we're just inundated. Nothing wrong with Lexus. If you drive a Lexus, it's okay. This is not an inundation against Lexus. I just don't like the commercial. But this isn't just billboards or TV ads. That's not what we're talking about here. I mean, this is a gas pumps, <laughs> bathroom stalls, checkout lines, uh, everywhere you go. If you watch YouTube videos, at the bottom of the YouTube, there's some ad that's running just about the whole time uh, that you're watching it. Now, I'm going to confess, I've got a little gas station I go up to because they have a little TV screen. And while I'm pumping gas, they're showing me a little, you know, like little two minutes of an episode of some show or something like that. And They've locked me in. I've been sucked right into the whole thing. Um, I wonder at Christmas time, though, is it more than 5,000? I mean, the ads are just popping all the times at Christmas season, right? They're, they're everywhere. You open up your mailbox, and you got about 10 or 11 daily advertisements that are coming. We're just bombarded with these. And these ads, they're projecting ideas to us. Did you know that? They're projecting ideas, messages that are both subtle and sometimes they're just straight overt. And during the Christmas time, it's primarily, predominantly, it's reducing the Christmas message to something that's less. Do you hear that? That's what the the ads are. They're reducing 
the Christmas message to something that it's less. It makes it smaller. And if you remove the spiritual meaning from Christmas, you know what you've just done? You remove the mighty from the story. You remove the power and the potency of what God is saying. And if we're not mindful to some of these little cultural subtleties that pop into it, we can often get surrounded by it to a point that we even live a diluted version of the message of Christmas. God coming to earth in a human form, in a real words, we make the Christmas story less mighty. Now, uh, there's a couple ways that the messages can be reduced. Sometimes messages are just plain secular. There's no, there's no Christian or spiritual value in it whatsoever. We call that secular. You know, if you remove the spiritual meaning of Christmas, well, what do you have? Um, we're kind of left with, uh, I don't know, a bunch of songs about cold weather, <laughs> um, which doesn't really make sense for our warm weather friends, right? Um, I mean, if we take the spiritual meaning out of Christmas, we're left with a lot of songs about talking snowmen or flying reindeer or big chubby guys in red suits that, that slide down chimney. That's what it's reduced to. Now, those are fun little stories, right, that we have. But if we reduce it, if we take the Christian message out of it, the spiritual meaning, that's what it's reduced to. And you're left with really, you're left with trivial things, little fun, trivial things. And this is really the cultural narrative of our time. I know that, that for myself and my generation and, and even those uh, around my age, that we often take something that's historic or prolific or important and we start to trade it for something that is shallow, insignificant, or convenient. And I can see it myself how I often fall victim into that way of thinking and then we do that often with the Christmas story as well. You know what it does? It makes a Christmas story smaller, smaller. Another message is one that it makes the Christmas story just sentimental. Um, this is the, the, the idea of, you know, you're, you're watching and you hear uh, about Christmas being all about being with friends and being with family, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. In fact, you might be saying, yeah, Tom, what's the, what's the problem? What's the beef with that? Uh, Nothing wrong with friends and family. In fact, I hope this Christmas that some of you get to experience what it's like to really be with family. I know for some of you, it's such a tough situation what goes on in your family throughout the year and that somehow at Christmas, you're just hoping it all kind of comes together and you get to experience some type of peaceful engagement there. But the problem is when we reduce it down to something that's just sentimental, that's just about family, that's just about friends, then we've done the same thing. We've reduced the story. We've reduced it down to some type of sentimental image that we may have that may or may not actually happen for us during the Christmas season. So we can reduce it sometimes to the secular, sometimes to simply the sentimental, but there's also this thing that we deal with probably the most, and we call it the, the selfish. Do you know what I'm talking about? The selfish. Uh, and now when kids sit on Santa's knee or lap and they, they're asked two questions, you know what those two questions are that they're asked? Have you been good this year? <laughs> you know? Have you ever had a kid that's got up there and just said, I'm terrible this year, Santa. Just been terrible. Terrible. And what's the second question they're, at, they're often asked? Uh, and then what do you want for Christmas? Have you been good and what do you want for Christmas? I think we carry those two questions around with us uh, throughout our life often. You know, even as adults, when we're walking through a store of the mall, we ask ourselves, have I been good this year? <laughs> yeah, I've been good. I've been real good this year. Now, what do I want? <laughs> and we enter the store and we get what we want, right? 
I mean, these, these type of questions are like programmed into us. Do you know that this year, uh, Americans will spend $447 billion in, at Christmas time? 2.6 billion square feet of wrapping paper is used. Um, not in my house, because I just, I'm just opposed to the whole wrapping thing. Not because uh, uh, it's bad, but because I just can't wrap those gifts. So I just say, forget it. You stick it under the tree at about midnight and wake up in the morning and voila, there you go. 2.6 billion square feet of wrapping paper. I mean, 7 out of 10 people will buy a gift for their dog. Oh, dog, you know, like, here you go, Rover, something for Christmas. I know, I know pet lovers. Just back off a second, okay? All right? Dog needs something too, apparently. Um, but we spend on people. We spend on ourselves. Do you know that this season, just, simp- just right after uh, the, the Black Friday, the survey said six out of ten people on that day bought a gift for themselves. Six out of ten bought a gift for themselves. So we reduce Christmas sometimes to the selfish. Do you know that the most popular present this year at Christmas, do you know what it'll be? I heard you say it. It'll be a gift card. I don't know. Go get it yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Christmas is often we reduce it to getting what we want. Now, if we reduce it, what we have really done is we've reduced something to a secular or sentimental or selfish. We've reduced the whole Christmas story, and we've taken the mighty out of it all all together. There's these parallels that we find in the people of Israel when they're living at the time that Isaiah is writing this. When they are, they are going to these medians and spiritists to discover counsel and to look for advice and how to live, and yet they're still following the seven Jewish festivals that they're supposed to do year after year. They still go to the festivals. They make the food for it, and they participate in it. But their life is not dominated by that. That's very similar when we get into a pattern sometimes of celebrating the Easter and celebrating the Christmas and yet, yet our lives are not always filled with the power and the mightiness that God has to offer uh, in, his, in this story. And then Isaiah says, unto us a child is born. And he's trying to redirect us into what will happen and what is coming very, very soon. You know, often today, um, I think we find ourselves in just this similar line of thinking and practice in the time of Isaiah. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves in the same things that the people of Israel eventually found themselves in, captivity. We find ourselves in some type of captivity, and there's something that's now a hold of us. There's something that has some mighty authority in our lives, just like that happened with the people of Isaiah. For some of you, 2011, this will be the year that you're held captive by some mighty hand of debt. It's mighty. And You know, when you look back, you say the question, man, I really wish we had just not made that decision. I really wish we had not bought that. How do we get out of that now? And we're locked in to this type of debt. And maybe you're in over your head and maybe you're, you know, you're seeking God for, for, for the, for what to do from this point and you're striving to catch up, but you're just tired and you're just whooped and you just can't find that avenue that will help you get ahead. You know, for some of you, uh, as you remember this year, you're going to realize this is the year that you are indeed addicted to something. The realization will come on you, and you'll say, you know what? I am am an alcoholic. (laughs) I am drawn to it every single day. I can't break the habit in my life. I I am addicted to pornography. I do have the modes and the habits of of figuring out how to do it when 
the families away or, or whatever the avenue. And we just realized one day, look, I'm addicted. And now the question in our head is, do I reveal that to somebody or do I just keep battling it and overcome it on my own? What do I do in this situation? For some of you, that realization has come on you this year. And for others, you can't really point to one thing that's wrong. I mean, the bills are paid, the job's pretty good, the family looks pretty stable, the, your, your kid's got clothes on them, and they're getting along pretty good at school with their friends, and maybe even have a couple activities, and you, it seems like you're managing the schedule pretty well. And you don't know what it is, but you just feel there's an emptiness in life. It's, there's just something missing. There's just something not there. Sometimes you might even find yourself kind of sitting, just kind of staring off, somewhat reflecting on this, or somewhat trying to figure out why the happiness or joy doesn't, doesn't come along with these things that seem to be in place. Can I remind you this morning that this redemptiveness, this filling of emptiness in our life, it begins in the story of Bethlehem. Because remember, the beauty of the Christmas story is found in God's love. That's the beauty of this story, is that when God looked down, everything I just talked about that this year may be remembered for, God looked down and he saw that already. And he said, it's just something missing. Is just really missing. And I need to go down and engage with them in a new and a different way. And what compelled him to do that was his love. You know, uh, the question for us this season might be, how do, we, how do we increase that meaning of Christmas? How do we increase the mightiness? And if you're like me and you've sat in church, for me it was about 16 years old till now, You've heard year after year a pastor get up and a preacher say something like, you know, this year Christmas can be different. This year can be different. If you, if you really live the true meaning of Christmas, it can be different to you this year. And yet, as, I, as I've heard that for many years, I couldn't hesitate. I couldn't fight the urge to be able, as I looked at the Christmas story, of saying the same thing this morning. How do we increase that power of Christmas? How do we increase the story so this morning, I want to encourage you as, as we move on here, is what we really need to look at doing is trying to live in the story, to really live in what the story means. Uh, I went to see a movie in 1984. It's called The Natural. Anybody ever seen that movie? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It was my favorite movie of all time. It still is. I mean, I remember in 1984, I was 11 years old, and I went to see this movie. I walked to the theater, and uh, it may be a shock to you, but it's a baseball movie, uh, and uh, as I went to see this, I mean, I was so engulfed in what was happening in this movie and the story of this baseball player. I remember walking home, and I mean, I was already in this mode. This was a couple-mile walk. I was already in this mode that I was Roy Hobbs and uh, how I thought about the movie all the way home. Well, this didn't disappear for about the next 20 years of my life. I found myself living in this movie. I found myself interpreting situations based on what, ha- what happened in the movie and how the main character would say these lines, and I would take these lines and make them like real-life lines that I would say. Like if my coach asked me a question, I wanted to answer just like Roy Hobbs answered in that situation. And I kind of found myself engulfed and living in the story. Then uh, it, there's this climax. I couldn't believe it one day. I walked in Highland Park Public Library where I was living in Chicago, and they had this big poster, and it said, uh, movie discussion day with this certain professor from Chicago State University, and the movie discussion was on the natural. I mean, the natural, this is not a movie that you have movie discussions. I mean, you'd go and discuss Pride and Prejudice, right? And movies like that. And, 
This was the natural. So I, you know, I was like a, a kid who just learned about Halloween and thought, candy? I'm going to get candy? I'm going to go to a movie discussion on the natural? And so I went. It turned out to be a dud of an event. But, uh, <laughs> but you get the point. I mean, we live in these situations sometimes. But then the Christmas story comes around, and the Christmas story is a quick ritual to, to live out and to be a part of during the Christmas season. Um, some of us, we, we don't even like listening to Christmas music during the Christmas time because we've, we've heard those songs. We hear them every year, right? Dallas Willard actually says once, he said, Familiar, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Meaning when we see something over and over, it becomes like wallpaper in our life where we don't, we don't even notice that it's even there. And we just go on and on. And we often do this with the Christmas story and we reduce it down to the secular or the sentimental or the selfish. And then we wonder, wonder what's the power? What's the power and what's the might in this story? There's iconic songs like uh, Silent Night, Holy Night. You know this one? All is calm, all is bright. And when we listen to that, we think that captures the Christmas story and we, it captures what it's all about. But uh, those stories just can't quite capture what's going on in the time. I mean, for me, come on, I mean, the, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Oh, not, not Jesus. Not, no, no crying for him. It doesn't really capture what actually would go on that night. Remember I told you that the beauty in the Christmas story is found in God's love. Nothing else around the story is all that beautiful from an earthly perspective. At the time of Jesus, it had tremendous conflict that was going on, tremendous conflict that was happening. I mean, the Roman Empire had, had really, they had come in and taken over the Greek Empire, and, but the Greek influence was still there. And so you had the Roman culture, a lot of Greek influence that was going on. The Romans didn't just come in with military power. They came in with an economy. They came in with culture. Uh, they came in with a new government, political systems, and that's how they took on. There was incredible unrest for the people. There was this time uh, about 166 years before Jesus where Judas Maccabeus comes on the scene and he leads this revolt against the Roman Empire. And they actually overthrow in the Roman uh, government in Jerusalem for a short period of time. It's known as the Maccabean Revolt. That's what you've got, this unrest that's going on all the time. And the people, I mean, they are sitting there thinking, one day, one day this, this mighty God, this person is going to come. In fact, when the, the Jewish people were being beat on or oppressed, often they would actually verbalize and say, you know, get yours now because one day, one day it's going to all be done. And we're going to have a ruler, and he will kill you. And that's things that they would say uh, in their defiance. So you had incredible unrest that was going on at the time. The government that was coming in was often in conflict with the, with the Jewish religious system. And yet the Roman government had a lot of trouble in, in battling against the religious system. And so you had incredible unrest. And then Mary and Joseph. We find out in this point of the story that Mary is pregnant. Pregnant. Uh, by, by no sex, <laughs> pregnant through, through God, pregnant and now carrying the Son of God. I and mean, this is a crazy, crazy story. I mean, Joseph only believed because the angel appeared to him and explained it to him. But could you imagine Joseph and Mary trying to explain this story to other people? Did you know that pregnancy outside of wedlock in this time could be punishable by death? 
We wouldn't dream of that today, would we? But that could have happened during this time. So can you think about this, this crazy, wild situation of this young teenage couple, now pregnant, claiming no sex had occurred, not wed, and now they're in this situation? I mean, they could be fearing for their life. And then, uh, on top of it all, this census occurs where now they have to get on a donkey and they have to travel during winter months to a, the town of, of Joseph's ancestors. And when they get there, there's, there's no place for them to stay. Whether by actually no rooms or whether somebody just looked at them and said, I don't want any part of this story. And they sent them on. Scholars debate what actually this stable area was. Some say it was a cave. Some say just a back fenced-in area where the animals were kept. Some say it was the first floor of homes where all the animals were kept and then people lived above. Whatever the, the story may be, it's irrelevant. You know, they're the pregnant Mary, now having contractions, ready to give birth. Teenage girl. She hadn't had many kids. She doesn't know what's going on. Mom and dad are not there. They're not in the nice hospital like uh, I got to go visit a few of you in when you had your babies this past year. She's on a stable floor with animals around and they're going to have their baby there. There's nothing really beautiful about this story. Animals are everywhere there and you know animals smell uh, really bad. And uh, there's food around, so uh, there's animal food, and then there's what animals do after they've eaten the food. And all of that is there. There's nothing beautiful about this story here. And then the baby comes, and the baby is born. And we often have this image of the animals around kind of cooing to the sound of Jesus' voice, and our, uh, you know, the babies, the animals kind of swaying to the tune of Away in a Manger, and, and they're all lined up beautifully for a nice snapshot that's going to be taken. But it's not like there's nothing beautiful going on there. I mean, I'm one that believes that when Jesus came to us, apart from sin, Jesus experienced everything I experience in life. Everything I experience, the temptation, the hardship, Jesus experienced them. And there he experienced the ultimate vulnerability in his birth, in a stable with teenage, unwed parents. This is what went on. There's nothing beautiful about the story from an earthly perspective. Hey, let's top it off by saying that Herod is about to decree a slaughter of young boys. He had heard the, the, that a, a child might come from, from the Jews, and though he didn't believe in all the prophecy stuff, he didn't want to take any chances. He didn't want to take any chances that another Maccabean uh, revolution was coming his way. And so his, his goal, just slaughter all the kids. And I don't know what year the kid's going to be born, so just line up a few years and we'll just slaughter them all in those years. And Joseph and Mary have to face this and deal with this and escape from this. There's nothing beautiful that goes on in this story. So the question at the end of the day then is, where's the power? Where's the power in this story? The power is found in God's love. That when God looked down and he saw us, what he saw was broken people. What he saw was people that were lost, that were striving for something. What he saw, too, he saw religious people, people that said they were followers of the God of Israel that just, that just were still empty. And his love compelled him to come down to earth. The only mighty, the power that's found in this story is the power of God's love. It's the power of that love.
And so when we as Christians, when we talk about receiving his love and we talk about receiving what he has to offer, we are in a real way, we are declaring mighty God. We're declaring that that son came, that he came to earth and his name is mighty God in our life. This week, Shree and I were talking, and, uh, or last week, and I asked her a question. I said, uh, does our community in Christianity revolve around love? And she kind of asked, well, what do you mean by, you know, what are you, what, what are you getting at here? I said, does our, does our community that we share in Christianity, does it revolve around love for one another, or does it revolve around like beliefs? Does it revolve around enjoying, enjoyment in company? Does it revolve around maybe a, a nice potluck every once in a while? Incidentally, I went to a potluck on Friday night with my son, and I'm telling you, they couldn't come close to the potlucks you, you throw here. Um, I mean, it was boxes of pizza. Boxes of pizza? Come on. All right, that's off the subject. Um, and so I said to her, does it revolve around love? And what I mean is in the Christmas story, when, Jesus, when God looks down at us, there is so much junk down here already. There's so much rebellion against him from his own people. There's, there's prejudice that goes on from his people having prejudice towards people that aren't believers or people that are living a lifestyle differently. And God still broke through. He still came down because the beauty of this story is found in God's love. Remember, the church was not surrounded, the stable, hanging out with Jesus the night he was born. There was no pastoral call that happened there in the stable. The beauty is that God came. In fact, the only visitation we get in the Bible is three wise men from the East that most likely had, had no understanding of the Christian story at all, traveling miles and miles and miles to come see this baby Jesus. Does our community revolve around love? Meaning that at the very core of what we believe and how we let God come into our life and transform us, the mightiness has to do with God's love. And that our community should always extend with love. Do we have belief systems? Absolutely. And we'll hold strong to them. But at the core of who we are, it's God's love. Because the beauty of the Christmas story, it's God's love. From an earthly perspective, there's nothing beautiful out about the story outside of that. Well, let me go and spend time praying for you and, and uh, give you just a few moments to reflect. And I would say this morning in a group this size, there might be one or two of you that you've never expressed that love. You've never experienced that love, I should say. And it's time to just say, yeah, I need mighty God in my life. I feel, I feel like my life has been secular or simply sentimental or, or certainly selfish. And, and, uh, and this morning, I, I want to receive of that, receive of that power. But I think there's also might be some of you this morning that you're believers. Maybe you've been believers a long time and it just kind of a light bulb just kind of went on and you said, oh, love, that's the core. There's a lot of people I haven't been loving. There's a lot of people, but because maybe they look different, act different, or have a different lifestyle, I just immediately click the love side of it off. Not how God operates. If this morning, if that light bulb went on, time to do a little business with, with God. Time to seek a little forgiveness on that and say, God, transform me to be an instrument of your love because at the end of the day, that's the beauty of the story, the beauty of the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your beauty and that it's expressed to us in how you love us. 
And Lord, I know that there might be somebody sitting here this morning that the struggle of their life has been allowing themselves to be loved. Maybe they were hurt by somebody uh, here on earth, a mom or dad or friend or whatever, and they just have a hard time receiving of love. Lord, I pray this morning that they could, they could grasp how incredible your actions were to express your love to us and that they could just receive of it and just allow themselves to be loved by you. Lord, I know that there's others this morning that um, they've not been givers of love. <laughs> Maybe they've been in church a long time and they, uh, they love you, Lord, but allowing love to be the core of their community with others has not, has not been in their heart. And so, Lord, I just pray if, if there be anyone there, Lord, that they would just surrender before you, receive of that, and ask, Lord, how do you want me to love other people? Lord, we thank you that you are mighty and that we do not need to live weak lives, reducing the story simply to those things we discussed. But, Lord, we can make you the core of the story, and we can find beauty in that this Christmas season. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you. We're glad you came today. Hey, if you're new with us, we have a little card that sits right in front of you. It looks something like this. If you just take a moment to kind of fill out your name and information, we'd love to connect you, at least tell you a little bit more about the church and how you can connect in and that type of stuff. The, the ushers are going to come in just a second to receive our, our morning offerings and tithes, and you could just drop this right in. Uh, the same way, if there's just something going on, every week there's three or four of you that send some type of prayer request. I want you to know we take those pretty seriously. And we spend time. Maybe for you right now, just your connection with God is just so hard to even think of the concept of praying to him. Um, We want to help you with that. But we also want to let you know, somebody will be praying for you this week if you're willing to take the time to just write something on that and let us know about that. Uh, Really, only myself and my staff sees that. So you don't need to, to worry about that going off in an email or being posted anywhere. It's just simply for us to pray for you and know something, something's being prayed for uh, in your life this week. Hey, our, our, our ushers are going to come and they're going to receive our morning offerings. Please stay faithful uh, this morning in your tithes, in the discipline of giving. Also, if the Lord has just moved on your heart in any way, follow him in what you need to do, whether you're a visitor with us, you're a member with us, or a regular tender. Uh, please give as the Lord has called you to this morning. All right, let's sing.